0: Uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. By the way, every time I read this, of course, I read it uh, exactly as it's printed here. But today I'm going to take out the word week because it should be translated as Sabbath on verse 1 of chapter 20. And you'll find that is true in all four Gospels. Every word's translated as the first of the week, or, um, the first day of the week. It really is the first of the Sabbaths. And why that is important is so that you'll understand the Feast of Unleavened Breads, you'll understand the Feast of Weeks, and you'll understand Pentecost and when all that takes place. And I've made reference a number of times to the book, The Calendar of the Crucifixion, because everything is laid out in there. And so uh, when it says that they appeared on the first of the Sabbath, that doesn't mean Sunday. It means the first week of Sabbath, as is counted towards the Feast of of, uh, Pentecost, which we'll get to when we get to Leviticus 23. Um, So, Lord willing, um, we'll get there. So let's now read um, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. The first of the Sabbath cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, "Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away." Jesus saith unto her, "Mary." She turned herself and saith unto him, "Rabboni," which is to say, "Master." Jesus saith unto her, "Touch me not, for I not yet, for I am not yet ascended to my Father." But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open our eyes that we might behold Jesus and open the scriptures unto us that we might see him and the work that he hath accomplished on our behalf to reconcile us unto the Father and have eternal fellowship with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, The title of my sermon this morning is Christ, the Promise of God. You may have noticed a theme in the hymns we are singing this morning, but you'll find allusions to there, to the promises of God. And our last hymn, indeed, will be standing on the promises of God. There are lots of promises in scriptures, but there's really one promise that um, is of import to us because all of the promises are um, to be found in Christ. And so Christ is... The promise of God is a title because the resurrection is in Christ. Jesus says of himself in uh, John chapter 11. I didn't put that one on your hand out there. John chapter 11, verse 25. But this is where you should be thinking in your head here. John chapter 11, 25 and 26. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? That's a question that God um, asks everyone is, do you believe this? We are commanded by God to believe the gospel. And the question is, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that uh, you shall have eternal life in Christ? So you do, do you believe that Jesus is um, the Messiah? So that's a question that every person needs to ask himself. In 1 John, the Lord tells us that he, hath, he that hath the Son... Hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life, and indeed the wrath of God abides on them. So it's very important that we appreciate and understand that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one life to be had, and that's eternal life, and it is in Christ. It is a person. Hence the title, Christ the Promise of God. So I've I'm going to do a little cleanup this morning because we've gone through this section of John chapter 20 a number of times, sharing some interesting things, um, and I want to back clean up and pick up some of these other verses which have interesting things as well. But for the benefit of our visitor, I want us to appreciate that you'll notice the peculiarity of what the uh, what is seen in the tomb, and it is what is seen, of course, is the linen clothing that Jesus was buried in, and it's folded up nice and neat. So we can appreciate that Jesus rose from the dead when he had accomplished the redemption of his people that the priest would do on the Day of Atonement. And like the priest on the Day of Atonement, when he had accomplished uh, what was set before him, he would fold up and his linen clothes and leave them in the tabernacle. And so Jesus has done that. He is our high priest, and having accomplished the high priestly duties, Um, He has folded up his linen clothes and they are set in such a way that we would appreciate that it was done with determination, him having accomplished everything. And then when Mary looks into the tomb, she sees something that the disciples did not see because God reveals himself differently to different people. He gives different people uh, more revelation than other people because that's the way he works according to the measure of grace that is in him. She sees the two angels, one at each side of the place where Jesus laid, and we can appreciate and understand that she's looking at... The true mercy seat, the mercy seat, of course, which was in the holiest of holies, had the Ark of the Covenant, over which were two angels, and she's looking at that. She's seeing two angels, one at either end. She's looking at the true mercy seat, the uh, true mercy seat where God accomplished the redemption of men. So again, we can appreciate that Christ is our high priest as we go through this here. Now, she is surprised. Um, Maybe that's not technically the right term, but she's distraught would be a better word because she's weeping. Jesus is not there. The disciples come, and they find also that Jesus is not there. And so we get down to verse 9, which is one of the verses I want to pick up today, and says, for for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Well, I think to myself, why didn't they know that? I mean, Jesus had been walking with them for three and a half years, teaching them um, extemporaneously, of course, things that he was sharing with them, but he was also pointing them to Scripture, and he was quoting from Scripture. And uh, we should appreciate in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, the first five verses there, that um, the Lord in there is setting forth the gospel, and he's setting forth the gospel according to the Scripture. So he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye also have received, and wherein ye stand." By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Verse 3 For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received how that Christ died for our sins, how? According to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then in verse five, it says, and he was seen of Cephas and then of the 12. Well, of course, Christ was first seen of Mary, but he makes a point here that he was seen first of Peter. Peter is the one of the people that has run to the tomb here, and Peter's the one who does not yet know um, what the scriptures had said, and they did not yet believe what the scriptures had said, that he must rise again from the dead. Now. I want to contrast that with because it says they knew not according to the scriptures. But you'll recall back in Matthew chapter 16 that the Lord had shared all of these things with them, that he indeed was going to rise from the dead. So when he's walking with the disciples in uh, Matthew chapter 16, he asks the question here, whom do men say that I, the son of man, Am. It's kind of interesting there because he kind of gives them the answer while he's asking the question, who do, um, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And that's an interesting question because a lot of people have lots of different things to say about who Christ, the Son of Man, is. Or I should say was, because they don't believe that he, is, um, he ever is. So they answer the question, well, some say that, he, that you are John the Baptist, some that Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets... And then he drills home to the heart in verse 15. He says, but whom say ye that I am? And that's an important question. Who do you personally say that Jesus is? Do you believe that he is the son of God? Well, Simon Peter answers the question in verse 16. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus then says to him something we should all appreciate in verse 17. He says, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So we can appreciate that knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ is by revelation only. And we're going to f- see that as we look at some of the other verses here. That is only by revelation that we can appreciate and understand that. You recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about that, that the flesh, uh, the fleshy spirit of man can only understand the things of the flesh. And to them, the things of the spirit are foolishness unto them. They don't understand it. They don't apprehend it. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. So God has to reveal himself um, to People before they will understand and appreciate who he is. So, as the conversation continues with um, the Lord, as they continue in their walk, we get down to verse 21. And it, the scripture tells us from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his di- disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem. Not that he's going to go there, you know, like this is just part of uh, one of the places he intends to walk through, but he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. So he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer these things, he must be killed, and he must be raised again the third day. And so Peter, just having had these things explained to him, and that he has just had this revelation from God who Jesus is, does not understand the gospel because he says Peter took him And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. He had just told him it must happen. Peter does not understand why it must happen because he doesn't understand the scriptures. He doesn't understand the scriptures that speak of the resurrection, which is what we're looking at in John here. But he certainly doesn't understand why all of these things must take place. Now, the reason I had our deacon read from Acts chapter 2 today is because who is speaking those things? It's Peter. (laughs) Peter. Peter has suddenly become a rocket scientist and understands that all of these scriptures point to Jesus. And he, in his speech here, he, he uh, chastens somewhat the um, people, men of Israel, when he tells them how all of these things have been laid out. Verse twenty-three says, "Him, meaning Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God." Not just that, God knew what was going to happen down the road of history, but God determined that it was going to happen, which is why Jesus said, this must happen. This is how men are going to be uh, redeemed unto me. This must happen. So Peter now understands it. In the first several verses of there, he's quoting from Joel and maybe Haggai. He's quoting from all over the Bible. Suddenly, Peter understands the scriptures about all of these things. So verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So Peter now understands all of these things. So we ask ourselves, what happened between, uh, you know, verse nine here of John chapter 20 and the book of Acts? What happened to Peter? Well, the answer is found in verse um, 22 of John chapter 20. The Lord has come and he has met in the upper room where the disciples have been weeping and mourning and they are there for fear of the Jews. They are fearful. And he brings peace unto them, which is what the Lord brings to every one of his children as he brings peace to them. And he says unto them in verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And so it's after Peter receives the Holy Ghost and it is after Christians receive the Holy Ghost, when they're regenerated, that finally they can open the Bible and understand the things that are there. Or they can understand the gospel when it's preached. They can have an apprehension and understand these things. And that's what Jesus taught Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He cannot enter in. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't, uh, can't apprehend these spiritual truths. Um, because man is spiritually dead. So that is what has happened to Peter, and so we can appreciate that um, Peter here in verse 9 doesn't believe. Peter, back in Matthew, has had it explained to him, still doesn't get it, but when he receives the Holy Ghost, then he gets it, and on the day of Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Ghost is poured out again, he receives actually a double measure of it, as do um, some of the disciples as well. Now he understands it, and the Lord is equipping them to go out into the world, and um, that's verse 21. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. You cannot go out in the world and preach the gospel unless you are sent, unless you have the Holy Ghost, because only then can you understand the gospel and then preach it to other um, people. So what scriptures talk about the resurrection? So I want to run through some of those uh, rather briefly. The first one, of course, comes back from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Lord says that he was going to put enmity between the seed of the um, woman and the uh, seed... of of Satan verse 15 Genesis 3 I will put enmity between thee speaking to Satan and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head meaning the seed of the woman Christ is going to bruise the head of Satan a bruise in your head is fatal so we can read in here that Christ is going to overcome Satan and all the works of Satan and we know that he took on the flesh to destroy the works of the devil and the devil himself and then he says and thou shalt bruise his heel so we can expect the Christ to receive an injury that is non-fatal in nature. He's going to have his head, he'll have his heel bruised. So we see in there the uh, Genesis, uh, pun intended, the beginning of the Gospels that, um, where we can appreciate um, the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If we continue to flip through the Scriptures, an interesting one, and you might not see this quite so readily, would have to do with Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, as I'm sure you're aware, is a type of Christ. Noah is an example of regeneration because he's going to go from the old world to the new world. It's like a person going, um, an unregenerated person, then going to um, a new place where they are regenerated because the old world is wiped out and then the Lord makes them everything new, at least typically makes things new. So we see in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 7, it talks about how Noah was in the ark, and it says the Lord shut him in, which is what the Lord does. He brings us into himself, and he he shuts us in. And then we read in verse 17, and the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and did what? Bear up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. Who was lifted up above the earth? Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So there's a picture here of Christ going on the cross while the wrath of God is poured out. Now, interestingly enough, you might wonder why God puts these little details in the scriptures, but you turn over to chapter 8 and look at verse 4, and it tells us when the ark rested. When did the ark rest? And the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. What day did Jesus raise from the dead? I know you've all gone home and studied the book. He was crucified on the 14th day. And how many days was he in the tomb? Three days, 14, 15, 16, 17. He was raised again on the 17th day. And we talked about that as a picture of now he's resting from his work, having redeemed his people unto himself. So we see in the picture of the ark, the death, burial, and resurrection of um, Christ. Now, um, in Genesis chapter 22, there's another picture of the resurrection. And this is something we should appreciate how God tried or tested Abraham to prove his heart. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1, and it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. The word tempt there means to test. God never puts sin in front of anybody with the thought that maybe they will stumble in it. He never does that. But He tests us and He tries our hearts to see if we will look to Him in in faith. So He he tested Him and He said unto Him, verse 2, Take now thy son, thy only son, Isaac. Can we see a parallel already? God took His only son, His only begotten Son, Jesus, and He put Him on the cross. He says, whom thou lovest. So we have an only son who's loved. As a side note, you know that this is the first place in the Bible where the word love appears. And the context is between a father and a son. You'd think it'd be between husband and wife, but it's between a father and a son because everything in here is testifying about Christ and what he's accomplished. The son that thou lovest and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee. So Abraham's going to take a son, and he's going to offer him up as a sacrifice. He knows what that means. He's going to have to slay a son and, and burn him. So it says in verse 3, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. Think one person on either side of Christ on the cross. He's already starting to lay out a, a loose picture here. And he took Isaac, his son, and clave wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which God told him. Abraham has to go to a specific place. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. Verse 4, then on the third day, three days are involved here, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Where is he looking? He's looking to glory. Verse 5, and Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go Yonder, What took place on the cross was between God the Father and God the Son, and only between God the Father and God the Son. He was going by himself with his son. He says, we will go yonder and worship, and pay attention to the next four words, and come again to you. We're going up. I'm going to slay my son, and we are coming back to you. Obviously, he believes that his son is going to be raised from the dead. He understands the promise of God that through his son shall come the Messiah. If Isaac come not back with him, then there will be no seed through the promised one, through Isaac, and there's no Christ. So he, he knows that Isaac has to come back. So in verse six, six, it says, he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. Isaac's got a burden. He's carrying Like a cross, it's obviously firewood, but you can see a picture of Christ here. He laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took um, fire in his hand and his knife, and they went, both of them, up together. So as we get up there, then we see in verse um, 8, my son, he's answering Isaac's question, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So we're seeing in there that this idea of substitution, that he knows that Christ is going to replace him, And as it continues here, that when he's fixing to slay his son, that God stays his hand and he looks behind him and he beholds a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Who is he seeing? He's seeing Christ. With his horns is symbolic of power and they're caught in a thicket. Thicket represents sin. We recall that Christ had a crown of thorns laid upon his head. So we see this wonderful type. And the book of Hebrews gives us the commentary on that when it says that Abraham received in type his son back from the dead. So the Bible helps us to appreciate that. What is said before here is what took place with respect to Christ, and the resurrection is in, in view here. So again, we have scriptures where the Lord is teaching us all of these wonderful things. Now, you get to Job chapter 19, and Job says very plainly what his expectation is. Though he's in the midst of this terrible trial, he's lost his children, He's lost all of his material goods. He's been stripped away of everything a person can be stripped away from except Christ. He's still leaning on the promises of God, and that's what this trial is all about. It's, uh, the Lord is demonstrating to Satan that no matter how much a man suffers in the flesh, if he's a Christian, he will not curse God. So we get to verse 25 of, of uh, Job chapter 19, and here Job says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and Christ will stand on the latter day. And though after my skin, worms destroy this body, so you can think of somebody being utterly consumed by worms, dust thou art, dust thou shall return. After all of that takes place, he says, and though after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh. Shall I see God? He knows that he's going to be resurrected. He's going to receive a a glorified body. And then he says, verse 27, in 26, I shall I see God. He's going to see God face to face in a resurrected body. Verse 27, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Irrespective of what happens to me and how much I suffer Though I go to the grave, I know that I'm coming back with a glorified body and that I will see my Redeemer because he ever lives. And that's a hope that every Christian has, that no matter how difficult this world becomes, no matter how many trials and tribulations we suffer, um, we will stand in glory and behold the face of our Lord and Savior in a loving way. Um, In Psalm 17, 15, the Lord says very plainly there in Psalm 1715, he says, As for me, I shall behold thy face, that would be Christ's face, in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. We are being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, who is the Son of God, and indeed, who is God. And this is a promise here that we will, when we wake, we will be like him. And First uh, John says that, for we shall know him as, as he is. Um, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, um, it says very plainly here, Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body, shall they arise, awaken seeing ye that dwell in the dust. So there's a promise of the resurrection here, and that manifests itself, at least in the epistles, when the Lord tells us very plainly in, in uh, Romans chapter 6 that we are buried with him in baptism, And uh, we are raised again with him uh, in newness of life. So we are identified with him. We are placed in Christ. So we were buried with him. We, We died with him. We were buried with him. And we are resurrected with him. And interestingly enough, we are ascended with him as well. And you notice in John chapter 20 there, he doesn't tell Mary to go tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. He says, tell them that I ascend. Tell them that I ascend. And that's different than just being raised from the dead because he's going up to glory. And when he's in glory, of course, he will ever intercede for us as our high priest. Ephesians chapter 2 uses that language very clearly about our union with Christ in terms of um, our um, death, burial, and resurrection. And Ephesians chapter 2, 5, and 6 says, even when we were dead in sin, have quickened us together... We were raised together, quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a mouthful there, but we were raised from the dead with him when he was raised from the dead and we ascended with him into glory because we are in him and we are indeed ruling and reigning with him um, in glory. Uh, Daniel chapter two verse uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 12, verse two verses that you probably have read before. It's a very clear language uh, about the resurrection. It says, "Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So in the final resurrection, some people are going to glory, the sheep on the right, and some are going to eternal destruction, the goats on the um, left. Now When the Lord is speaking to a wicked and perverse nation, he says, The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. So shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So we have a tendency when we read that to go, oh, okay, so it's going to be three days and three nights, and that's all we need to consider when we consider Jonah. But if you look at Jonah, and I put your references there, chapter 1, verse 17, first of all, we should appreciate, how did Jonah get in the belly of the whale? How did he get into the water? Remember, he couldn't jump in. He had to be picked up and thrown in, and he told that to him. You guys have to pick me up and cast me in, something they were reluctant to do. But that's the way it had to be. Christ had to be taken by wicked hands and crucified. I mean, he wasn't going to drive nails through his feet and hang himself on the cross, but it had to be done according to the scriptures. So we read in verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1 that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. By the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken with wicked hands and crucified. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, what happened when he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? Well, chapter 2 explains that. And out of expediency for time, I'm not going to preach on chapter 2. But you should read that because it talks about him praying and crying out to the Lord his God while he was in there. It talks about him being down, carried down uh, to the belly of hell hell, in verse 2. It talks about how he is in the midst of the deep and how he's got... um, seaweed uh, wrapped around his head, which is like unto the Lord having a crown of thorns wrapped around his head. It talks about his expectation. He's looking unto Christ, God, the holy, um, the holy temple, which, of course, Christ is looking towards the church. It says, talks about how um, for the... Um, I gonna go there, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus says here that for the joy that was set before him... What's the joy that was set before Christ? Eternal fellowship with you the church, the redemption of the church. That was the joy that set before him. So for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we read about that in Jonah chapter 2, so it's important to understand that and apprehend the truths in Jonah chapter 2, because that's what the Lord is referring to. It's not just a simple thing. Well, he was, he was in a fish three days and three nights, and so I'll be in the, in the grave three days and three nights, but we should understand um, what took place there and the prayer that we read in uh, Jonah chapter 2 because it speaks about Christ. And then in verse 10, and the Lord spake unto the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So he was raised again from the dead just as Jonah was spat out. The Lord was raised from the dead. So after the, uh, we're back now in John chapter 20. After we see these things, after the disciples see these things, what does it say that they do? In verse 10, it says they go again unto their own home. They go again into their own home. Well, that's not where you want to go when you have seen Christ or um, um, what you want to do. They haven't seen Christ yet, but they should apprehend the promises of Scripture. That's not the home you want to go to. You want to go to the home that Christ has prepared for you. And what is the home that Christ has prepared for you? Well, you recall back in um, John chapter... 14 verses one through 6, the Lord talks about how he has gone to prepare a place for us. And we've already covered that section, but where did Jesus go to prepare a place for us? He went to the cross. That's where he went on the day of preparation to prepare a place for us. And he says, "In my father's house are many mansions. That's the house you want to go to. not your own home, you want to go to the Father's house. And so uh, the Lord says, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to come back and I'll receive you unto myself." which is what he's going to do. And that's what he does when, of course, when he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Ghost. He was receiving them unto himself. He's becoming united with them. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, it says that Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope, firm unto the end. So Christ is our house. God the Father is our house. They're all united together. The true temple is Christ. The true temple is God, and it talks about that in the book of Revelation. So that's where we need to go, and that's where they're going to go when Christ receives them unto himself. But here it's interesting they say they go into their own home. The home we want to go to is Christ himself. Now, as we get down here further, as I talked about, that we are blind and cannot see the Lord or understand the scripture without revelation from him. So we see that Mary here, she's struggling. She looks, there's no, the Lord is not there. The woman, the uh, angels uh, talk to her and she's brokenhearted because she too doesn't understand the scriptures either. And so he refers to her, Jesus says to her in verse 15, woman, so there's a conversation between the two, but she doesn't know who he is. She doesn't recognize him. And you wonder why she wouldn't recognize him. But she doesn't, and that is common. People don't recognize him. We're going to see that on the road to Emmaus. Jesus walks with the disciples, and they ask him, hey, don't you know what's going on here? And Because he, he's asking the question, just like the Lord does to all of us. He starts to open our hearts up, and he starts to prick us and get us to think about things. And so he does that on the road to Emmaus. And here, and he's asking her, why are you weeping? And whom do you seek? Of course he knows why she's weeping, and he knows why she, uh, whom she's seeking, but he's bringing that truth out in her. And she shares with him her lamentation. She still doesn't know he is until Jesus says one word to her in verse 16. He only says one word, and that word is Mary. He simply calls her by name. In John chapter 10, the Lord has taught us about that. In verse 3, we see that he is the shepherd. He's also the door. He's the porter of the door. But nevertheless, he says, he calleth his own sheep, by name. God called every person here unto himself by calling them by their name. And it says, uh, And the sheep hear his voice, the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. So the sheep, the true sheep, the uh, ones whom the Lord has elected unto salvation, they hear his name. They recognize his voice, and that's exactly what Mary did. As soon as he said "Mary," she gets it. I know who you are. <laughs> uh, you are my Lord and Savior. And so he does that to her, just as he did um, to us. We the Scripture talks about how he, uh, you know, the very hairs of our head are numbered. He certainly knows us personally. We've talked about John 17 about how he has loved us from before the foundation of the world. There's an eternality with respect to the Lord's love for us. Everything that the Lord did and suffered, he did so for us because he loves us. That is the root uh, motivation of all of these things here. Uh, Isaiah 43 verse 1 says the same thing about how he has called us by name. In Isaiah 43 1 he says, um, Now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, those are synonyms for Christ. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee and called thee by name. Thou art mine. That's a promise that we can all apprehend that Jesus has called us by name. No man can come unto the Son unless the Father with has sent him draw us. So we are drawn to the Lord. He calls us by name. Um, Now uh, I'm batting clean up again. So we get down to verse 17, and that's a very interesting one. She recognizes him in verse 16. She calls him Rabboni, which is to say master. She knows that he is um, her Lord. And then verse 17, the Lord says something very interesting. He says, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. So I want to talk about that for just a minute here. Touch me not. That's verse 17. Now, you're going to contrast that with what you see in um, verse 27. In verse 27, he says to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And in Matthew 28, it talks about how they fell down on his feet, um, and they, uh, they grabbed the Lord when they had seen him. Now, in uh, the case here with Thomas, that's eight days later. In the case of Matthew, um, it's the same day. It's Matthew 12, verse, um, no, it's not there. It's going to be Matthew 28. Verse 9 is what I made reference to. Matthew 28, verse 9. That's when he comes to them and he says, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. So Matthew's teaching us one thing, which is true, that happened, and John is teaching us another thing, which is both true. I've shared with us why the Gospels are different. In Matthew, Jesus is presented as a king, and John, he's presented as, um, as God. So there's two things that are in in view here. What's set before us here, interestingly enough, in John uh, chapter 20, is that, one, first of all, we do appreciate that we no longer know Christ after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so the relationship between Jesus and all the disciples is going to change. He's going to go up and he's going to go into glory, and he's going to be there ever interceding on our behalf as our high priest, who's also our brother, which it says here in verse 17 as well. So let's keep that in in mind here. But um, Jesus... Scripture says, is the first fruits of them that slept. He's the first fruits of them that slept. He's the first one that was raised from the dead with a glorified body. You know, Elijah and Moses, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were all in white. No resurrected body yet, but they're nevertheless with the Lord. Um, to be absent from the bodies to be present um, with the Lord. So 2 uh, Corinthians um, chapter 5, verse 16, tells us that he is the first fruits of them that slept. Now, you have to know the... Um, The Old Testament to understand what is taking place here. One of the things I love about the Gospels is that Jesus, while while all of these things are taking place, he is God who is sovereign over everything. The Bible says that in him dwelt all the um, fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is fulfilling Scripture, and he's conducting himself in a manner consistent with what was required of the Mosaic Law. Jesus, you'll require, is the anti-type of all of the types in the Scriptures. Now, the priests are supposed to make a wave offering before the Lord. What is a wave offering? They pick it up and they wave it back and forth. When was Jesus waved back and forth? When he was on the cross and there was an earthquake. He was waved back and forth. He is the wave offering, literally. But now there's something else that has to take place here. And you can study this. This is in Leviticus chapter 23, Also in the book, The Calendar of the Crucifixion, where I lay it all out for you. But this is what the Lord is telling the people what they're going to do when they come into the land that the Lord gives them. This is what they're going to do when they come into the land that the Lord gives them. When they're going to cross over the Jordan River, which they're going to coincidentally do at the Passover. And then they're going to celebrate the Passover. But what are they supposed to do when they come into the land that the Lord gives them? I'm intentionally using that word, gives them. Verse ten of Leviticus twenty-three. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Who's the sheaf of the first fruit? It's Christ. Who's the priest? It's Christ. And he, the priest shall wave the sheath before the Lord to be accepted for you. The Lord is doing this on our behalf to be accepted for us. Why does he have to do it? Because everything we touch is unclean. And that's the other scriptures you'll see referenced there. Everything we touch is unclean. And so we can't really offer anything unto the Lord. He's got to offer it himself. And what does he offer? Himself. He is the offering he brings the offering to himself. He presents the offering to his father. And that's what Jesus is telling you. Don't touch me because you'll defile me. And I am the wave offering, which I have to present to my father. And when does he do that? Verse 12. And ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf of an heel without blemish on the first year of burnt offering for the Lord. I'm sorry. It's verse 11 right in front of it. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you, quote, on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. What's the morrow after the Sabbath? Well, that's going to be uh, Nisan the 18th. Remember in that book, Nisan the 17th is Saturday, the Sabbath day. It's the next day. They see him. He's resurrected. Don't touch me. Tell the, my brethren, I ascend to the Father. Okay, we've already talked about his new uh, role in our relationship with him. But he's the wave offering and he has to present before before the Lord on our behalf. So don't defile him. Up he goes, back down he comes. Then the disciples see him and they cling to his feet because he's accomplished the Levitical law um, right in this context here, in this sense here, according to the context of what was set before us in um, in the Old Testament. So once again, all of these interesting things are taking place, but Christ is ever-fulfilling prophecy. He's ever-fulfilling scripture because all the scriptures point to uh, Christ, so He is the wave offering, and that you're seeing set before us here. Now, we should also appreciate what He says in here in terms of um, "I ascend to My Father." Um, so, go tell the brethren. So He's telling us here, the Almighty is telling us that you and I are His brethren, and this is on resurrected ground. This is after Christ has been raised from the dead in His glorified body, expiated our sins through His work, and He is telling us that he is our brethren. In um, Hebrews chapter 2, it says that. Again, the commentary here, speaking of Christ, who is the captain of our salvation, it says in verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth, that would be Christ, he sanctified us, and they who are sanctified, that's the church, that's you and me, are of one, we are united, we are one with Christ, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren he's not ashamed to call them brethren he knows that we sin but he knows that he has redeemed us under the Father and we have peace through God with God through our Lord Jesus Christ but he calls us his brethren. There are several adjectives that are used to um, help us appreciate our union with Christ and what um, privileges we have with him. We're called his brother and if you've had brothers you know that they fail to measure up to what Christ um, is. But nevertheless, Christ is our brother. He's also our husband, and we know that our husbands fail to measure up. He's described as our father, um, and we know that our fathers have failed to measure up. But nevertheless, God, Christ, is the epitome of all of those things. But we should appreciate this wonderful relationship that we have with him. He says, hey, I'm your father. He says, I am your husband, and I am your brother. He's our kinsman, and uh, Pastor Rowan will get to that in the book of Ruth, that he is our near kinsman. So we have wonderful privileges um, with him through the work that he has done to expiate our sins from us and to unite us with the Father. And you should prevail yourself upon them because he tells you to do that in Hebrews chapter 4 where he says that we should boldly come before the throne of grace. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now that high priest is your brother. That great high priest is your husband. That great high priest is your father that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with their feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Jesus knows everything that we suffer. He knows every temptation that is set before us. He knows every trial that is set before us because he has suffered all of them and yet he is without sin. So in verse 16, he says, Let us therefore, because of what Christ has accomplished and because that you can appreciate that he understands everything that you're struggling with, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the Lord wants us to appreciate that, that we should come to him, and that he is our brother, our husband, and our father. And so um, we stand on similar ground as he does because he's saying, my father and your father, that's the same. My father and your father. I tell them that I send to my father and unto your father and that I ascend unto my God and to your God. Again, helping us to appreciate the unity that we stand um, on similar ground as he does because we are like him. He is the firstborn among many Brethren. Um, so we stand there. Now, Mary Magdalene came and says she tells the, the disciples what the Lord the things had shared with her. Now, this is just a, a side note, and I'm going to close with this. The Bible uses all sorts of interesting means to teach us things. Some of them are just very loose in general. I shared with us uh, maybe last Sunday or the Sunday before that it's very interesting the, um, um, the fact that the women were the ones that were by the cross the women were the ones that followed him to the tomb. Uh, the women kind of leaned against the sepulcher. It talks about that they sat against it. A woman was the one to whom Christ first revealed himself. And so we appreciate the, um, the um, oh, I, I'm afraid I can't think of the word, but the fact that the women are there is interesting um, and that we should learn something from that. If you look at the body of Scripture, you're going to find that women represent emotions and the heart, whereas men represent the intellect. It's interesting that a woman anointed Christ for his burial, and a woman was the one whom the Lord first uh, was seen having been resurrected. So the women represent the um, emotions and the heart. Christ must be apprehended in the heart and not the intellect for saving faith. In Romans chapter 10... It speaks about that in verse 9. In Romans 10, 9, it says, "...that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation." Um, i was in a church a number of years ago and i made the comment there are no intellectual christians in heaven and i'm telling you the head started exploding on the young men that considered themselves to be theologians they got you can't believe how upset they got they ran to the pastor and it was just very interesting there are no intellectual christians in heaven and I, what i was referring to is what is really written here there are lots of people that know lots of doctrine and they will say all sorts of things about christ that are true but they don't know him in their heart they don't believe on him in their heart and if the um, belief and apprehension of who Christ is is not in the heart, then it's not a savings faith. It's got to be in your heart. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen those kind of people. And the Lord speaks about that in, in Matthew chapter 7. On that day many shall say unto me, Lord, Lord, did we not you know, cast out devils in thy name? Did not many we do many mighty works in thy name? And he shall say, depart from ye workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. So I have seen that over the years in my Christian walk, that there are people that have all sorts of intellectual knowledge of Christ, but they don't have a saving faith in their heart. And as I've said in the past, the gap between the head and the heart is as wide as eternity and deep as hell. Only grace can take it from the head to the heart. And that's what the Lord has done here with respect to his disciples, opening up their eyes that they can behold and see who he is and believe on him in their heart. And this would be our prayer for the people to whom we witness to, that they would apprehend it in their heart. Amen. Amen.